Welcome, it's indisputable. I'm your host, Rashad Richie. Good to be with you. We have a lot on the agenda today. Bringing our news of the day, none other than Dan Evans, host of Good Morning Bad News, Power Report and Audio Face. Should be a fascinating breakdown. He's a fascinating gent. Top story of the day, hell of a thing. Texas passes a law that says basically the governor can overturn any election. Also related but unrelated, Jenny Dam Thomas has been receiving thousands and thousands of dollars secretly from organizations pushing legislative policy and yes, court connected agendas. Let me first start with Texas. I said this was going to happen because the writing has been on the wall. They do not want voters picking politicians. They want politicians picking voters. Let's put them up. The governor of Texas. So the governor, Greg Abbott, wants power to overturn not elections. I know that's how it is being contextualized, but actually overturn democracy. Understand what this does. Democracy means majority rule. This would give him the authority to overturn majority rule. The GOP controlled Texas Senate on Tuesday passed a proposal allowing the state to turn overturn elections in Harris County, home of the state's most populous city, okay? Uh, the legislation penalizes county officials for running out of ballot paper at some voting sites in the 2022 election, the Houston Chronicle reported. Still, more importantly, it gives Republican Greg Abbott precedent setting power to undo election results. The measure would give Abbott's appointed Secretary of State, this is a political appointee. It would give the governor's political appointee the authority to hold a new election in the county. If it turns out they ran out of paper or they had paper at 2% or more of its polling sites for more than an hour, the newspaper noted. Now, you may be wondering, well, what does running out of paper have to do with the results of an election? Nothing. Every expert has said absolutely nothing, has nothing to do with the mechanics of voting or the election results. There's more, Democrats saw the move as simply handing the governor away to reverse results as Republicans like former President Donald Trump and losing Arizona governor candidate Kerry Lake tried to do. So let's say this becomes law, right? Let's say this becomes norm throughout the United States of America. About half of these states have already passed bills saying you don't need a permit to carry a gun, constitutional carry. You got about 25, 26 states already subscribing to that model. This is how they do it. They flow from a particular genesis. There's a creation, there's always a catalyst for these bills. Texas is now a catalyst for these bills throughout the country. And let me remind you that the US Supreme Court still has to decide if legislators can actually overturn elections also. Once again, silencing the voice of democracy, there's more. You wanna vest in a political appointee, the ability to make a decision 
as to whether or not an election should be overturned and reheld. State Senator Royce West, Democrat from Dallas said, Harris County Attorney Christian Menifee told the Cron that the bill was, and I quote, about targeting the largest county in the state, which is led by people of color. Let me also take you to a place called Fulton County, Georgia. Something very similar is going on there, where Georgia passed a very restrictive voter rule or voter law. We called it the voter restriction law. They called it, it actually is a voter access law. No, it's not, limits access. But see, inside of that law was something even more dangerous than making it a misdemeanor to bring somebody water. While that is horrible in the statute, the most dangerous element of that Georgia law says that the state can take over board of election, a county board of election at any time they choose in the process. Georgia has already slipped in. Texas, they are on the fast track of becoming a complete dictatorship themselves. Now, let me go to the wife of Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas is a US Supreme Court justice. Clarence Thomas's wife, Jenny Dam Thomas reportedly did what? Let's put it up full mask. What did she do? Received tens of thousands of dollars from consulting work. And her name was intentionally left off, left off of the paperwork that's called evidence of a guilty conscience. Clarence Thomas's wife, Jenny Thomas, reportedly received tens of thousands of dollars for this consulting work. And we have the goods. Jenny Thomas received the funds from conservative activists. Let's put them up. Leonard Leo. I have an interesting story about Mr. Leo, who has also helped former President Donald Trump select judicial nominees. Not help, he told him who to pick, real simple, and then gave him money. That's how it worked. According to the Washington Post investigation, the news came at a time when the Clarence, when Clarence Thomas himself is under fire for receiving undisclosed gifts. And some of these gifts were worth over half a million dollars, according to the initial reporting. Leo made the arrangements through former Trump administration official Kellyanne Conway. Yes, the fixer, according to the Washington Post report. In January 2012, Leo instructed the GOP pollster Kellyanne Conway to build a nonprofit group he advises and use that money to pay Virginia Jenny Thomas. The documents show, according to the report, the same year, the nonprofit, the Judicial Education Project, filed a brief to the Supreme Court in a landmark voting rights case. Once again, another situation where Clarence Thomas, US Supreme Court justice, should have recused himself. There's more. The investigation further uncovered the circumstances surrounding how the payments were made secret. Leo, a key figure in a network of nonprofits that has worked to support the nominations of conservative judges, told Kanye, told Conway, excuse me, that he wanted her to give Jenny Thomas another $25,000, the documents show. He emphasized that the paperwork should have no mention of Jenny, of course, according to 
the Washington Post. Now, who leaked this? Who leaked this information? Probably uh, Kellyanne Conway, possibly. Uh, but let's be very clear. So literally, you have an individual who is saying, uh, let, let's give uh, Jenny Thomas uh, an extra $25,000. No explanation as to why, no work invoice as to work performed, no consultation agreement that we can find for record. Uh, just give her $25,000. Why do you think she's receiving $25,000? What is the reason for the additional money? They already have Crow, he's a multi-billionaire, that's not enough. There's more. The polling company, Conway's firm, reportedly sent the Judicial Education Project a $25,000 bill and listed the reason only as supplement for constitution polling and opinion consultation. It all, according to the documents, the polling company paid Thomas's firm Liberty Consulting 80,000 between June 2011 and June 2012 and it expected to pay $20,000 more before the end of 2012 according to the Washington Post investigation the documents reviewed by the post do not indicate the precise nature of any work of any work Ms Thomas did for the judicial education project or the polling company Itself. Why? Because the work was kept off record. That's why. Please understand, she's not getting money because uh, she's just a nice woman. She's not getting money because somebody just has a bleeding heart for her uh, and she's a struggling uh, wife of a US Supreme Court justice and she just needs a couple of dollars to get by. There's a why, there's a reason she's getting this money. And just because we do not have that reason on record does not mean it should not be investigated, nor does it mean there's nothing nefarious happening. In a statement, Leo reportedly told the Post, knowing how disrespectful, malicious and gossipy people can be. I have always tried to protect the privacy of Justice Thomas and Jenny. Sounds like an admission of guilt. I mean, sir, you just admitted to doing it basically. May have been ill advised by your attorney, but I'm glad you did so personally. I did some digging and I found a report last year about this same fellow, okay? He received such a huge amount of money that really, when you look at it, only either a small country could have given this money or a large one, or perhaps billionaire. Here it is. This IRS document obtained by CNN is evidence of the largest anonymous dark money political donation ever reported, $1.6 billion. It is, according to experts, a staggering amount. I am just stunned. We are talking about income that is many multiples larger than the largest dark money groups ever found. And it's going to a new organization called Marble Freedom Trust. While you've probably never heard of it or the man in charge of it, the whole country is familiar with his work. His name is Leonard Leo, a devout Catholic known as Donald Trump's Supreme Court whisperer. There are lots of really smart people, Margaret, who can serve on the U.S. Supreme Court, dozens and dozens. But you need people who have courage. Leo helped usher in the most conservative Supreme Court in decades, 
Along with helping block Merrick Garland from the court, he and his colleagues at the Federalist Society are given credit for the confirmations of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. So that person received that much money, over $1 billion from a secret donation. You see, money like that should make anyone nervous. If somebody hands you that kind of money, rest assured, major strings are connected. It's time for the American public to find out what those strings are. Dan, thoughts here? I mean, remarkably, we've seen in this country, you don't even need $1.6 billion. The It's a race to the top for these billionaires, but we've seen politicians, family members of politicians give away for much less, like that $25,000 you were talking about over there. It just goes to show with this story and also in connection to what you're talking about in Texas, where Houston is going to lose their voting rights in a fundamental way or like, yep. yeah. Potentially, it echoes of yeah what you're describing in Atlanta. What's happening potentially in St. Louis and in Jackson, Mississippi, where the where the state wants to come in and take rights away from predominantly black cities, because they want power. And the only correction I would make to what you said earlier is these people don't even want to deal with the vote. Yeah. You're saying that like, oh, they want to choose who they vote for. Yeah, kind of. But ideally, they just get to be in power forever. You That's see that true. with the Supreme Court justice and you see how unethical they are. So this is just eroding faith in this in these court systems. And we need to fight to get that back because without that, it's really tough to have a democracy. Very well said. All right, we will follow the story. Guarantee developments are coming. There's an accident, right? A person is drinking, you assume the person drinking is at fault in the accident. Let me do it this way. Uh, let me put up one of the uh, pictures of this horrible accident. Uh, what if I told you that witnesses say a driver who caused a five car crash admitted drinking was the reason behind the wreck. However, the DeKalb County Police, which is in the state of Georgia, has been less than involved. In prosecuting this case, uh, DeKalb County Police Department has been caught by one of the drivers involved, placing the blame on her with contradictory report, uh, police reports and altered details. Other drivers involved are now wondering why the driver responsible was not arrested for a DUI in the first place. And now I'm wondering the same thing. Angela Green contacted us, the mother of the young woman who was involved in the wreck. The young woman who sounded the whistle on the contradicting police reports says she was horrified when describing how she felt seeing her daughter's name, her daughter's mangled car, and then later her her daughter's name in the report. Green says her daughter is now facing an onslaught of insurance claims from other vehicles involved because they switched the blame to her. After details in a second police report emerged, a second police report was a rewritten police report according to Ms. Green. Now, the second police report blames the 22-year-old daughter, the 22-year-old driver, the driver who was not drinking. Her second police report is in question 
by her and others. According to her, the DeKalb County Police Department is standing behind their police report, conveniently refuting her daughter's backseat passenger, not even mentioning the backseat passenger who had injuries consistent with being hit from behind. The medical records below also confirm this. We have the records there. There's more. She said the initial police report paints a very different picture, placing blame on the driver of an SUV. Statements say witnesses saw the SUV cross lanes, hitting Green's daughter's white car from behind, triggering a chain reaction collision. In both reports, the officer reported smelling alcohol on the SUV driver and the driver admitted to drinking. A field sobriety test was conducted on the driver of the SUV. However, he was not arrested. To be involved in a multi-car accident like that and to walk away and not be charged at all. What's going on here, Green said, the car was blue in the first report. And according to her, green in the second. The drunk driver, according to her, didn't have a passenger in the first report. Suddenly, he has a passenger in the second report. DeKalb County Police confirmed to Lincoln that it's not unusual for details to change during an investigation. They said the supplemental reports are done by experts with the department's traffic specialist unit. They also said even with the SUV driver admitting to drinking, since he passed the field sobriety test, the responding officers were not required to make an arrest. All right, that is statutorily true. They're not required to make an arrest. They're also not required not to. They can detain for reckless driving. Uh, so we can go easily one way or the other here. It was a judgment called on the officer. But you have to admit, I'm talking directly to uh, the powers that be in DeKalb County. All of this coupled together in context, not outside of context, but in context, it seems strange. The lack of um, continuity as it relates to the first and second police report. The leaving out a person in the backseat in the second police report, but it is listed in the first one. Placing a passenger inside of a vehicle that was not in that vehicle with the individual who was initially alleged to have been drinking. Yes, details somehow get clarified. Sometimes they get magnified, all right? But when you have material changes like this, these are big changes. This is not, um, it was 6 p.m., uh, but it was actually 6.30 p.m. This is a material change in the reality of what may have happened. You, in the report, eliminate a witness that the report says was there the first time, but not there the second, that's material. You put a witness inside of a vehicle that you said was not there the first time, but is there in the second report. That is a material difference. They deserve answers. All right, Dan, thumbs here. Uh, I just have, I'm having been in a car accident where um, I was involved in like multiple cars and I wasn't at fault because my car was being rear-ended by the other ones and getting all those insurance claims, like dealing with all of that, I'm just thinking a lot about the victims here. And that's why it's important for the police to be consistent. Like there's a lot of, when we feel there's like two different tiers of justice here, yeah. like in this whole situation where you feel like, okay, well, usually in this situation, if someone is, suspected of reckless driving at bare minimum and they've caused this much damage. There's A, a more consistent record and B, um, the police have the, yeah, the, like you said, the authority to either detain or not detain. But it seems like, 
especially at the admission of drinking and especially how much damage had been caused here with five cars damaged. Um, could have been so much more uh, tragic of a situation here. Uh, it's very interesting that the police aren't being consistent here. And I think it's worth looking into. Yeah, all right, I agree. We will follow this story as well. Okay, the mayor of New York, callous response to a man being murdered on his subway. Let me first take you to this horrific video. They murdered a man. They murdered a man. What you just saw, what you have been seeing on social media is a killing. It is not combat, it is not self defense. It is a killing, it is a murder. I wanna do this, Um, I wanna go directly to the video of a happier time for this individual, his name is Jordan Neely. Jordan Neely um, is dead because people did not respect his life. Talented, like to make people smile. I've looked at this video so many times. I mean, obviously, uh, an individual who has soul, who has heart. Let's put up the screenshot. The death of 30 year old Jordan Neely, a well known New York City subway performer and Michael Jackson impersonator, is sparking outrage everywhere. Neely was placed in a 15 minute chokehold by an ex-Marine on a Manhattan subway train earlier this week. The New York City Mayor Eric Adams refuses to call this a murder despite damning video and a homicide ruling from the medical examiner. He says, those referring to this as a murder are irresponsible for jumping to conclusions. Mr. Mayor, you are the irresponsible one, let me tell you why. We have freedoms here. The man who was killed had freedoms too. And by the way, you, sir, are in charge of making sure those freedoms are protected in the city of New York. Now, for you to say people are irresponsible for calling it what it is, remember, sir, this is not the court of law. We're in the court of public opinion. Do you not make conclusions every day? Do you not make judgment calls every day? Have you not held press conferences and talked about an investigation before the conclusion of it? Yes, you have, sir, I've seen you, I've seen you. But all of a sudden, literally a murder captured on camera, you can't figure out what's what. You're you're a detective, you're a former officer, sir. You can't figure out what this was. There's more, according to the police report obtained by the New York Times. Police responded to reports 
of a fight that had broken out just before 2.30 PM Monday on a northbound F train. When they arrived at the scene, they found Mr. Neely unconscious. Paramedics took him to the nearby hospital where he was pronounced dead. Police did take the passenger who put Neely in a chokehold into custody. They questioned him, they released him without filing any charges at all. Police have decided not to release his name, but they say the investigation is ongoing. Let's go to the protesters. This is what happens when we are outraged. We let you know we are outraged. Protesters gathered at the Broadway Lafayette subway station after the death was ruled a homicide. They were heard chanting F Eric Adams and Black Lives Matter. BLM and the NAACP have been joining Democrats in calling for the passenger who decided to commit murder to be held accountable for this crime. Why does it take so much? According to a witness, Juan Alberto Vasquez, who also happened to record the incident, he said Neely never posed any serious threat at all. Vasquez stated that when Neely started yelling, I don't have food, I don't have uh, I don't have to drink, I'm fed up, I don't mind going to jail and getting life in prison, I'm ready to die before removing a jacket and throwing it on the floor. Vasquez stated that while Neely seemed to be disturbed, he did not want to attack anyone. Neely never did physically assault anyone. But while he was yelling, another passenger approached him, grabbed him by the neck and forced him to the ground. The medical examiner ruled Neely's death, compression of neck, that means chokehold by homicide. That means another person did it to him. The, uh, they ordered additional testing after completing the initial autopsy for further examination. So they want to examine the tissue in Neely's neck. According to his family, he suffered from autism, schizophrenia. He was permanently scarred also over the death of his mother, Christine Neely was found strangled and stuffed in a suitcase in 2007 when he was 14. Law enforcement sources said Neely had numerous arrests on his record, including for drugs, disorderly conduct and fair beating, who gives a damn? And that he had been living on the streets with a recorded history of mental illness. At the time of his death, he had a warrant after his arrest in a November 2021 case, he was accused of assaulting a 67 year old woman in the East Village, according to the sources. Now, I mentioned that because the police wanted you to know it. And I wanted you to know what kind of character the police are by saying that about a murder victim, okay? Murder victim, right? So now you literally have an individual who they know, they are aware of who he is, there's no arrest. The man literally was in their custody and they let him go. These are the dynamics which create the friction between community and cops. None of this makes sense to anybody because I guarantee you, I promise you, if the man being strangled happened to belong to the professional policing, the individual who strangled him under those same circumstances would be in prison right now without the possibility of bond. Why should the rules change? Because your uniform does. We're all humans. We all deserve to be treated fairly. So did Mr. Neely. All right, Dan, thoughts here. 
nothing but devastation from the story. And you look at every single level from people reacting. There was multiple people who are holding Neely down to the people recording the video, to the mayor and the cops, to the media. You're just seeing a fundamental dehumanization of this person that wouldn't happen if they were unhoused. You wouldn't be talking about like, do you want to have a mayor dancing around? Oh, this person's life is ended a little bit. Like that, you wouldn't be dancing around the terms here if this person had a home, if this person had a job, if this person was traditionally respected in our society, which we shouldn't base respect off of those things. There should be the society that goes. We have people who are unhoused, who are in mental situations, who are asking for help. Let's help them. Oh, there's a lot of people in the situation. Let's create systems and structures to help these people because that is what's needed here is a lot more empathy. And unfortunately, we're not seeing it from enough places from people in power. Agreed. All right. We got more on the other side. It's indisputable. Stick and stay. All right. Welcome back. We have a lot of show left. I'm going to read some of these amazing comments. Very thankful. For everyone who continues to opine, all right? Okay. So yesterday, and I want to do this correctly, we did a story, we covered a story about Padilla High School. Padilla School and their soccer team facing racial taunts during a game. A member of the team we reported was suspended for a game. Now, in all due respect and fairness, to be transparent, the reporting, the original reporting, that we received and did this story of segment from was Atlanta Black Star. I was in contact with Atlanta Black Star this morning. And we've taken down the story on all platforms to ensure no possible misinformation was spread. According to the new information that we do have, one of the individuals involved was not the one listed on the picture. All right, was not the one presented on the picture from that particular article. And so we won't apologize for that. What I'm going to do, however, is on Monday, I'm going to do a full and exhaustive review and apology and retraction of whatever information may have been incorrect from that article. So while we were not the originators of it, that is no excuse. We're the ones who re promoted that story based on a good faith understanding that it was accurate. We want to make sure we get that right, more than right. All right, so on Monday, I'm going to do a segment to give full detail, all right? So we've already taken it down so that we can go through the process of making sure Monday it is all corrected, all right? Okay, we got a lot of comments. I read as many as I can, I am a little pressed for time. Badger Gale says, another says democracy like politicians giving themselves the right to overturn the will of the voters. That's right, it's insane, isn't it? Okay, Brett Campbell, aka Dragging My Ass. And Adams claims to be a Christian. Jesus will call you a hypocrite, Mr. Adams, and tell you he never knew you. That's right, that's exactly what would happen. Thank you, Stephanie Haynes. When a white man has a mental health breakdown, he's provided a chance. When we have them, we get a burial plot. When will our pain stop ending with perpetual care packages? Fix this ish, we matter, try, all right? All right, got something for you. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish you Karen would.
You want to call the police on him for having a barbecue on a and Sunday? You're going to feel free! Back off! I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Based on that video, you may feel sorry for this particular Karen. Let me give you the background. Here it is. Excuse me? All right, now you have the other part of the story. You have the why things are cause and effect in this world. Okay, let me give a big shout out to the professional who attempted to deescalate, tried to be reasonable, decided to engage in a respectful way, even though they were being disrespected completely. Nobody deserves to be treated like that, madam. So they called the police. They called the police and it looked as if the police were not trying to arrest her. If you look at that full video, they were actually trying to talk with her, trying to talk her out of the restaurant until, well, her carinicity would not allow it. All right, Dan, you can't be a crybaby after talking all that ish about what you gonna do to somebody. Yeah, and in an airport where it seems like she was intoxicated, I don't know why. It, it, I don't know if it's like chance or statistics, but every time I'm on the show, like half the Karen videos come from <laughs> airports, right. which is just, I get it, it's a stressful situation. No one likes traveling. Don't make it worse by delaying yourself and others. Cause guess what she didn't get to do was get the F out of Newark or New York or wherever That's she was right. talking about. <laughs> that, that did not happen. Karenicity is not rewarded. Exactly. We're trying to help Karens understand that typically whatever plan they had, uh, it, it's not going to work if you utilize your carenicity to get there, all right? Nine times out of 10. Every now and then a Karen gets one through. Okay, Berkeley professor has been pretending to be a Native American. She is not, she's a white woman, all right? Okay, let's put it up full mass. I mean, this woman went to extremes. Professor Liz Hoover of UC Berkeley has been caught in a web of lies as her lifelong claims to be a descendant of the Mohawk and Mi'kmaq tribes prove false. 
The accusations have been ongoing covertly, covertly since 2021. So people have been saying, hey, you know, um, I don't think she's Native American. That's according to Adrian Keene, friend and colleague of Professor Hoover. Let's put up Ms. Keene, okay? In February of 2021, Elizabeth Hoover's name, Professor Hoover, her name appeared on a controversial alleged pretendian list. Pretendian list. I'm not making this up. Since she had long asserted that she was, in fact, Native American. And the list contained the names of people who have actual undisputed Native ties or are even enrolled in their nations, offered to help her to write and enrolled, uh, I'll, I'll, excuse me, I offered to help her to write a statement about her identity to clear things up. She declined. All right. So we're talking about a friend of hers. They say, hey, obviously these folks wrong, right? Because we're friends. You wouldn't lie to me and tell me you're Native American and, and you're not, right? So, so let me help you clear this up. Um, I'm going to write the clarification point. You're a professor, you know how to do it. There's more. Uh, let's put it up. So Keen, uh, by the way, who is a true descendant uh, of Native Americans, indigenous ancestry, then decided to launch our own investigation. Wait a minute, you won't let me clarify this for you? So she engaged in research herself. Keen stated her findings in a letter to Professor Hoover. On all of these consensus, your ancestors are listed as white on documents where they could presumably have self-identified, such as marriage license, they chose to identify as white. Additionally, they each have a massive web of relatives that chain off them siblings, aunts, uncles, cousins, and so on. Making thousands and thousands of relatives throughout 200 years, none of them identified as Indian that I could find. End quote. Keen has now made her dismay public on Twitter. Let's put it up. Uh, so you clearly see, she says, I have been devastated, enraged, and exhausted over this for the past year. I've spent countless hours supporting her current and former students, trying to process my own emotions and having to continue on at the, an institution that gave her a PhD, her first job and tenure. She also says, I have so much more to say, and I will. The waves of harm extending from this are immense and difficult to even capture. So many actual native people have been caught in the web and there are so many more like her. I'm extremely grateful to the friends and colleagues who have held me up through this and supported me as everything fell apart over and over again. Adrian Keen wrote those. Uh, many are especially concerned that the lies have brought uh, Hoover uh, unique career opportunities and money. This was a previous job at Brown University, all right? Look at that, assistant professor of ethnic studies and American studies, well damn. Courses and taught seminars, introduction to American Indian studies, community engagement with health and environment, Native American environmental health movements, treaty rights and food rights, eating local in Indian country, thawing the frozen Indian. American Indian Museum representation, Native Americans in the media, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, 
um, overkill. Uh, really disappointed, obviously students deserve better than this. Now I don't give a damn, you lied to your administration. That's on you, you lied to these students, it's between me and you then. There's more, Hoover has since released an apology. That'll do it. So she releases an apology stating that she will rectify the situation. I am a white person. Whoa, ma'am, you, you're so brave that you admitted you're a white person after everyone knew. I am a white person who has incorrectly identified as native my whole life. Uh, based on incomplete information. I will continue to funnel the proceeds from my talks and book sales into Native Farm. I have put away my dance regalia. I will gear future research towards supporting people and communities with whom I have an authentic relationship. I mean, damn, Professor, are you going to apologize to the Native Americans? Huh? Let's put it up. Despite this, over 300 scholars have called for her to resign. Uh, make it 301, I'm calling for a resignation too. Including critical statements from people such as Audra Simpson, a renowned indigenous professor. Mohawk scholar, Audra Simpson, an anthropology professor at Columbia University. Also argued Hoover's professional history shows she lacks the requisite ethical and academic integrity to be a professor or a social scientist, that is correct. Whether intentional or not, she has committed a form of fraud and has benefited from doing so, Simpson said. Explaining that it is possible that Hoover took jobs, fellowships, or grants away from actual native people. Not possible, she did. She absolutely did. This is not about admiration for the native culture. Let me explain why I say that. If this was about admiration for the native culture, first of all, you would never engage in activity that would oppress a Native American or a native or indigenous individual from receiving what was developed and designed for them to receive. You would not take the place of trying to educate about the culture knowing that you were not authentically from it. You would absolutely hate anyone who would try to harm a culture that you actually love. No ma'am, I don't buy this, you love the culture stuff. And if this was somehow just connected to maybe a misunderstanding, why did you not let your friend clear this up when she came to you? As a matter of fact, she thought it was so strange that you would not allow that gesture, that courtesy. She said it's so strange, she had to start investigating you herself, even with evidence that you were not native. Your friend, your friend, even with that information, believed you, believed you. And then it comes out, you in fact are not who you have been telling people you are, okay? You have no shame, Adam. Your response is you incorrectly identified yourself based on incomplete information, you see, no one is perfect, professor, none of us, not me, not you, nobody. Change is possible, transformation is available. I know that firsthand. 
But if you do not acknowledge what you have done, no one can expect that you have transformed because there is no transformation without acknowledgement of your deed. We'll see what happens. Um, obviously, there's a lot that she has benefited from over the years, uh, claiming to be um, an indigenous person. Uh, Dan, just unbelievable. She got away with this for so long and went to the highest levels of academia. Yeah, that's kind of what I get the most anger from out of the story is that there are opportunities that indigenous folks would love to have that she unfortunately took away just by her presence. There's a big difference between appreciation and appropriation. And considering I'm also a graduate of UC Berkeley, I would think that she was taught that there. But unfortunately, yeah. um, she's made it through the ranks there. And again, really made a lot of other folks there who have gone through the sociology program that harms them as well. So um, I hope she makes the proper reparations pun very much intended uh, on this matter for herself. And yeah. resigning should be part of that. Absolutely, and I think the other professor was spot on about the ethical integrity dynamic. Anytime you go through doctoral studies, you have to pass what's called the Institutional Review Board. You have to get certified to do actual research. And all of that is contextualized through ethical and moral behavior about how you engage the community, how you engage your content and your truthfulness in presenting that data to the public and publishing it based on a good faith notion of your accuracy. Uh, when you lack the prerequisite uh, intellectual integrity, as well as moral uh, and ethical uh, dynamics connected to you as a person, the answer is no. You can work somewhere else, but you should not work as a professor, all right? Okay, we got more on the other side. It's indisputable, stick and stay. All right, welcome back. We have a lot of show left. Let me read some comments before I do that. I want to remind you um, of an exonerated human being, a man that never committed a crime, but was convicted of it, spent 21 years for a wrongful conviction. We had him on the show, great mind, beautiful soul, beautiful brother. While he was serving this time for a crime he never committed, according to him, correctional officers took him out to the yard, beat him, he's now paralyzed from the neck down. So despite being exonerated and now released from prison, Sam Randolph is currently disabled, confined to a bed. His family and friends are asking for financial contributions of any amount to reach a goal of 100,000 to support him. We wanna make sure we provide all the help we can. He is a very good man who continues to spread the word of not only civic, Engagement, the importance of being engaged, but also the importance of reform. This happened to him because of a corrupt system. All right, let me go to some of these comments. I appreciate you in advance. Okay, what do we have? Uh, snack underscore Panther, member for eight months, thank you. Uh, that's not Pocahontas, that's Jennifer Lopez. Chris Rock said that. Yeah. Uh, Hunger Games underscore 1989. Oh, look, a Karen crying after she threatens to kill a bartender. I mean, she was talking. She cried like a five-year-old. I mean, but she was going to follow somebody home and do something bad to them just a few minutes before. That's You're a tantrum. Right. The tantrum, all right, there you go. All right, paper underscore dragon underscore. Rethink your plan, Karen. They never do, they never do, all right? Okay, um, what if I told you a Kansas man was wrongly convicted of a crime because the police wanted him 
even though they knew his brother did it. So the brother set him up. It gets even more interesting than that. Let's put him up, really sad story. A Kansas man wrongly in prison for 15 years, he now gets 7.5 million. Floyd Bledsoe, a Kansas man who spent all those years in prison for a sexual assault and murder he never committed, is said to be awarded 7.5 million in a proposed settlement with Jefferson County. You see, this is why corrupt police defund the police. I'm going to give you the background. Mr. Blesso was convicted of the 1999 killing and rape of a 14 year old child named Camille Arfman. He was released from prison in late 2015 after DNA evidence linked his father and brother to the crime, okay? I want you to remember this, DNA evidence linked his father and brother to the crime. In his lawsuit against the city of Oskaloosa, Floyd claimed that his brother had led law enforcement to Arfman's body and confessed to the murder. But that police had decided instead to frame him, to frame him. Tom died by suicide in 2015, that's the brother. After DNA testing revealed he was likely the true perpetrator. Using his final written words to confess once again to the horrific crime and finally free his brother. All right, doesn't work that way, it's not that simply actually provided uh, more complication. Now, last week at Jefferson County Commission meeting, the county attorney, Joshua Ney, presented the board with a proposed agreement to pay Mr. Bledsoe a total of $7.5 million over the next 10 years with an initial payment of 1.5 million. The commission has voted unanimously to approve the settlement agreement. All right, let's put this picture up again. All right, I want to remind you that he never committed the crime. He never should have been in prison. According to the narrative, the officers were well aware that his brother did it, but they wanted him. So they let the brother go. The brother was down with it, by the way. They let the brother go. And this brother, Floyd Bledsoe, had to serve that time. Once again, the story is about Mr. Bledsoe receiving the 7.5 million. However, the story should also be about how corrupt policing defunds your city. This is why it is happening, because of corrupt police. Not negligent policing, not bad policing, corrupt policing. All right, Dan, thoughts here. $7.5 million over the next 10 years, plus the additional $1.5 million is a lot of money. Which is why I like that framing that you're doing of the police are defunding themselves every time they are corrupt and they get caught. Right. I'm advocating for that man lost 15 years of his life and he's by all regards innocent. That is too low of an amount of money, which only just understates your point. Yeah, that's right, there you go, all right. A gunman fires into a Fox News affiliate station. Here it is. You see in the corner, someone is trying to get inside of the door. That's going to happen and then 
it is unsuccessful, so they start shooting. Front desk individuals respond as anyone would, um, trying to get to safety, okay? I'm going to give you the background as to what happened, all right? Um, so no one, no one was struck by any of the shots fired, okay? So that's the good thing. Um, not from a lack of trying, but no one was struck from the shot fired Tuesday into the WHBQ station, the Fox affiliate in Tennessee's second largest city, Memphis. Uh, the Memphis Police Department Deputy Chief Stephen Chandler said at a news conference, the bullet fired with an AR style rifle hit glass and a desk. But it wasn't clear if it was fired intentionally, he said. Crisis negotiators helped take the suspect into custody. He wanted to meet with media. He had a message to send out, Chandler said. He didn't provide more details. Memphis police later announced that they had arrested Gerard Nathan, 26 years of age, and charged him with aggravated assault and reckless endangerment. It wasn't immediately clear if he had an attorney. Nathan has had mental health issues since he was young, Marsha McKinney told news outlets. He's one of the nicest, kindest people, but everybody has another side, McKinney said. I think that my son is crying out for attention because he needs some help. The suspect first approached the station from a vestibule into the lobby of the station that was locked, wanting to talk, the station said. The suspect then showed the employee that he had a gun. The employee then left before the suspect fired a shot. According to the video, he then kept trying to open the locked door into the station and became angry, stomping his feet. Nathan appeared in court Wednesday. He told a judge that he could not afford to pay for a lawyer. The judge said he would be appointed a public defender. All right, here we go. Madness with guns, right? Okay, so there's a problem in America. Everybody basically agrees there's a problem in America with guns and gun violence and access to guns and individuals can have unlimited guns, unlimited ammunition, the list goes on. It's quite insane. Moments like this should remind everyone, when you have such free access to guns, you could be sitting at work one day. That could happen to you, that could happen to you. We have to engage in processes to limit, to restrict that ability, especially of individuals who may have been red flagged or people who have, let's say, a questionable history with violence. These things are agreed by most Americans. All right, Dan, thoughts here. It's really scary and well, the thing you said there is really accurate that in any workplace now, you kind of have to be worried about, okay, now we have shooter drills. Just like now we're learning that kids are having them too. So it's a sad state of what affairs we're dealing with in society. But when you read that quote where they said, oh, well, we, A, they got a hostage negotiator or a crisis negotiator to talk them down. So that's a certain specialty that they don't always roll out for you. Yep. But B, they couldn't determine whether or not he was guilty of like intentionally firing the bullets. It's all right, sure, that's fine. It's the two tier justice system that we talk right. about all the time. Sometimes for rich and poor, sometimes I think it's a skin thing. All right. Very. Very sad and scary story. A grandmother has the police barge into her home. You know, they're at the wrong place. Let's put her up. So you will see the grandmother, and we also have a screenshot of the police barging into her house. According to news for Jacksonville, 
police busted into Christy Jackson's home. And she said it was a case of mistaken identity. She told the local news that she's calling for accountability after she said officers threw her on the ground and handcuffed her. She said police later questioned and released her after realizing they had the wrong person. Christy Jackson's four year old grandson and two daughters were also inside of the apartment off of Moncrief Road in Jacksonville, all right? So this was JSO officers. They went into her house looking for a female suspect. Jackson said within five seconds of knocking on the door, police were inside forcing her into handcuffs. Let me give you background how this started. Jackson said it all started the knock on the door. JSO officers asked her if she was Mrs. Cooper. And Jackson said she told the officers she wasn't Mrs. Cooper twice. She said she then tried to shut her front door. I got ready to close the door and it was stopped by the officer's foot. And all the other officers bomb rushed right through here, Jackson said. At one point during the scuffle, a JSO officer is heard saying, we're trying to figure out what's going on as well. Jackson is later heard asking members of her family to run, get her photo identification. Jackson said JSO officers eventually took her out of her house in handcuffs, placed her in the back of a squad car where they questioned her. She said officers did not read her rights or tell her why she was being detained. Once I got inside the car and the officer had four pictures of this girl they were looking for. And out of all of the pictures, we don't look alike, skin color or hair color. Hers was more red, she said. Jackson said 30 minutes later, police let her go and told it was a case of mistaken identity because of her hair color. She said one JSO officer said he was sorry. But she said her family is still traumatized by what happened. Children watched the whole damn thing. All right, um, let's put him up. All right, so news for Jackson, two videos of the incident to JSO and asked several questions, including if the officers had a warrant and if Jacksonville Sheriff TK Waters had a response to the video. JSO said the incident is being administratively reviewed and added it could not comment on the incident currently. All right, Buck stops with you, uh, sir. Uh, we're gonna definitely follow this story, see exactly what disciplinary action or possible charges happen from this incident of a citizen being accosted by your officers. All right, Dan, thoughts? You're not helping the whole idea of police are supposed to serve and protect people when you are doing this. And your, your response is, oh, we're trying to figure out what's going on too. Well, maybe yeah. you want to ask the person who you're barging into. If you're traumatizing people, if you're making people have a negative reaction or a negative opinion with the police when you are just trying to you know, exist or be there when they're the ones at fault and you're trying to explain that. And you can't explain that to them because they have guns and multiple people coming to you. Then yes, of course, you're going to create a system like this where people don't trust the police and yep. crime is harder to control. All right, welcome back. We have a lot of show left. I'm going to read a few comments, somewhat pressed for time. I will be brief. Okay, we got Jenny B. It is amazing the contortions the police put themselves through to make excuses for some people. That is correct, and no excuse for others, right? Um, you don't like my music? This wasn't just property damage, this was reckless endangerment. Uh, and I agree, okay? Happy Joy 72, happy Joe 72. One man choked to death for yelling. 
taking uh, and talking and another has a gun and is alive and taken by the police. Disgraceful. Uh, we want to see everybody live, right? Okay. All right, let's get it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the bullpen. My dear brother's back, Brandon Tatum, former police officer, author of Beaten Black and Blue, being a black cop in an America under siege. Officer Tatum, welcome back, sir, how are you? Thank you for having me back, my brother, I'm doing well. All right, man, okay, well, let's get into it. I, I see you've been talking reckless about me on your YouTube page over there. We'll address that later. I, I don't know if there's reckless. I think oh, it's, it's reckless facts. Oh, okay. We, you about to see how reckless it is in a minute. <laughs> so let's get into policing versus public safety. That is the agreed to debate format today. Um, I think it is a separation. I don't want to presume what you know or believe about those two dynamics. So if you would give us your sentiment and I will opine. Yeah, I think I mean I think this is one and the same. If you ask me my opinion, based on my experience as a police officer, you do both, right? You're, you're policing, you're adhering to the laws, the Constitution, you enforce those laws, but then also you have a duty and a responsibility to connect with the community and to use your resources that are available to you to make a best outcome, make the best outcome that you can when interacting with the public. I think those things are interchangeable; they go one hand in hand, and then you cannot have one without the other. All right, so I see it differently. I see policing as a separate operation, uh, but connected. Uh, so for example, I think public safety is the overall goal. Policing is one methodology to obtain that goal. Um, I have what's called a five-tier public safety directive. My five-tier directive says here are your five pillars and every government has to do these things and do them well to have an effective public safety model, one, fire service, two, law enforcement, three, emergency medical, EMS, four, mental health, and five, preventative programs. Now, that's your public safety model, okay? Uh, policing has become conflated. I agree, there's a conflation now of policing and public safety. It is not the same, it is not the same. And that is evidenced by the reality that police often will say, we're not trained to deal with this. And they will name something that is an issue in public safety. If there's a mental health disorder, uh, police officers are typically not well equipped or well trained to deal with that element. Well, is it a safety dynamic? Yes, it can be a safety dynamic for members of the community. Um, also preventative measures, police officers are reactionary. They come typically when somebody calls 911 or when they have seen something that seems illegal, right? That is the normative rule. So they can't be preventative by the definition and design of their operation. They are not crime preventers, they are typically crime fighters. So I submit to you, dear brother, that we have somehow got gotten off course here as it relates to public safety and policing, where many people are Thinking like you, that in order to have public safety, you must have a massive police budget. But police officers admit many elements of public safety in a community, they are simply unable to address no matter how much money you give them. What, right, right. what do you say about that? 
Yeah, I don't think it's that you have to have a massive police department and a massive budget. You just need to have an effective budget and an effective okay. police department. And we need to have police officers that are adequately trained, right? Because we can't just avoid a mental health scenario. If just say we go to a domestic violence situation and the husband is mentally ill. Mm -hmm. As a police officer, you still have to enforce the law and we should be well trained enough to, to deal with it as efficient and effective as possible. Police officers will never be social workers. That's not the field that they're in, but you can have a level of communication, a level of training that can help you deal with these situations in the best way you can when the situation presents itself like we were CIT trained crisis intervention trained. We took 40 hours of training. We learned a lot about mental illness. We learned how to deescalate, but we can only do so much. But I think it's invaluable that we have that level of training and it will help police officers be effective. We, yeah. we, cannot, we cannot avoid the fact that law enforcement has to get involved. And I want to touch real quick on the, on the proactive side. That's why funding police is important. So police are not just uh, reactive, they can be proactive. And being proactive meaning you have enough police officers that they can go out and patrol the community. We get a flyer of a, of a, of a suspect that's uh, at large. We can go find that person instead of just going call to call to call to call and not being uh, proactive. You said police officers are not social workers. That's actually factually untrue. Uh, there are a number of police officers today who are in fact social workers. They have a master of social work. Some of them have a PhD and they work in law enforcement. Some of them actually carry guns, some of them have decided not to. That has become a new dynamic in the progression of law enforcement where you do have social workers who are on police forces. And many of these police forces have seen a significant connection between community and cop or community and policing because they decided to progress with the community itself. I will give you Ithaca, New York. Ithaca, New York, they did, they did some revolutionary things, all right? They brought in social workers. They also did an exhaustive psychological examination at the end of the training and written exam and everything else. They did an exhaustive psychological evaluation of those cops. These are people that qualify to be cops, brother. They were about to get the badge, all right? 75% of them failed. 75% of those officers failed that psychological evaluation. The 25% that made it, however, the 25% that did pass. Not one of those cops, this is years now, not one of those officers have given the citizens of Ithaca, New York an issue at all. Dr. What do you Richie, say to that you, data? No, I think that's that's what that's what we're supposed to do. And, okay. and it seems as if you are speaking of this as if it was new. When I joined the police department in 2011, we did the same thing. No, so you said that police officers, no, no, you said police officers are not uh, social workers. I just gave an right. example of one department that decided to bring in social workers as police officers or replace police officers with social workers because well, they found out that 50% of their calls, they actually didn't need an officer, they needed a social worker. Well, and so they decided to create their policing model based on the community model. Right, and I don't have any problem with that if it's, okay. if it's effective and efficient for the community. Let me there just give you an example of what we did. Okay. We didn't have to replace any police officers, but we incorporated what we did with the specialists in, in, in uh, social work. So what we would do, we would go to a domestic violence situation. The police officer will make sure the scene is safe, arrest people if we need to. And then we will, we will stand there on scene and allow a social worker to come and deal with the victim of a domestic violence situation or their children. So we partnered in an intimate way with that particular situation, which I think is great. Okay. I'm not opposed to a community saying, right. hey, we don't have, we don't need this many police. We need like more of this. We need, hey, brother, we need more of that. I think we'll agree. I think we'll agree. So let me take you to Chicago. Chicago has cops uh, that are paid higher than the national average. 
They have more cops than they've ever had before, uh, plenteous, and they still have one of the worst crime solve rates uh, in the United States of America. So just giving a, a cop or giving police officers, giving a department a bunch of money, to hire a bunch of cops to pay them more money, does not necessarily equate to a reduction in crime. As a matter of Dr. fact, if you go ahead, sir. I'll say, Dr. Richie, I just want to I just want to make this a point. You know, just because police have what they need to be successful in trying to prevent crime, don't stop people from being criminals and stop that's people correct. from acting out. And then here's another thing: you have but to have see, social, is, you have to have correct. policies. You have to I have agree. policies in place too, because police yeah. can only arrest so many people. You take them down that's there and right. they don't prosecute people, or they incentivize or decriminalize certain things. Okay, then brother. we exacerbate the criminal All behavior. Right. Man, I really appreciate you opening that gateway. So let me submit something to you, because you've said some things that actually do make sense. And it's probably- I, I always make sense. No, sir, you don't. <laughs> so let me bring you back to a comment you made in reference to um, policing. 100% of the time, the reason why police departments receive more money is because they are pitched to the community as the best way to reduce Crime in their community. Now, where Chicago, are you getting that information from? Because that's when we when we got a bigger budget. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Nothing to do with what you're referring to. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Okay. Um, you can look up virtually any report over the last ten years where mayor has stood up and said we have to give our police officers more money. They've always utilized the uh, requisite dynamic of uh, crime or criminality in order to make the case that we need more money for the police budget to effectively fight crime. Here's the point I want to make to you. You said something about Ithaca, New York that I actually think is true. You said good for Ithaca basically, because if it works for that community, it works for that community. And you want what works. That's a public safety model, that is a public safety attitude. We want what works, that is what we desire, okay? So let's say there's a community that spends $1 billion a year on police. And the community says, you know what? We still have crime increasing, nothing is changing. We keep giving you more money, we keep hiring more cops, and we keep getting increased, uh, increased crime. So instead of 1 billion, uh, we're going to now say, let's cut back to 750 million and use 250 million for preventative mental health or wherever else those dynamics are located. If it's connected to a crime of survival, if it's connected to drug and alcohol use, if it's connected to being unsheltered, if it's connected to not having a job, if it's connected to not having a skill set, let's address the underlying issues before they get to the place of criminal contact. So let's try that with our 250 million. Let's decrease the policing budget to increase our public safety budget because that works for our community. Would you agree with that, sir? Well, Dr. Richie, I would agree with it on, on a face value, Good. but we have to we have to understand the dynamic. Like the problem okay. that I think we are facing is that people are saying let's eliminate the police because they're racist. Let's eliminate well, the police because are. they're bad. Some well, of yeah, them are. Yeah, some of them are. It's very oh. rare, but some of them are. Oh, okay, well, but it shouldn't happen at say, all, brother. Especially well, when we're humans. That they're well, racist and they get to keep well, no, their no, jobs. No, 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 Come it's on, man. Human, it's, it's human nature. There's racist You're people right. everywhere. You're right. It is. Listen, sir. Bias. So, but it's not bias. Hyperbite, all that's human nature, dear. But and it's you don't rare, need a gun in the you, badge. You don't need a gun in the badge. But in the, but in retrospect, in reality, when I say reality of policing, it's very rare. Every most other professions have I don't way know more what adverse. What? Every uh, most professions have a lot more adverse employees than police. It's tell, rare okay, that tell, you tell, have tell a racist me. police officer. Tell, tell me it's, what? It's what absolutely you, rare. Tell me what industry? I, I never. 
in the medical industry. In the medical you, industry, you can go to are, you can go to your pulpit. You can go to your pulpit at your churches. Okay. You can so go me, on television. You can get to any profession. You right. will see more so dynamics of every, racial racial issues than you do in policing. Okay, every other profession is more racist than the police. Is what you're saying? I have never met a racist police officer when I was a police who officer for six a damn and a half years. Who you done met, sir? I, I've been. That has I nothing was in the, to do na, the Black with National the, Police with the Association. Macrocosm of data. I was in the, a. What, what are you saying? I, I did this for a living. How many police officers do you know? Come on, man, how many what, police officers do you know? How many police officers do you know? You would like me to answer that question, sir? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, I know probably personally maybe 11, 12 police officers. How many officers. of them are racist? Hold, hold on, dear brother. Hold on. How man. many are racist? Brother, I'm, I'm going to answer the question the way I choose to. Okay. Um, so I know about 11 to 12 officers. All of them are in executive leadership of some sort, chief, sheriffs, progressive, good people. Um, they have racist cops. Uh, they have racist cops that I myself have had to report against. And my friend and I, we've talked um, long about how this individual already had problems before that day happened. So while you may say, well, I've never met a racist cop. Well, good for you. You're a lucky one. Well, why, why don't they fire them then? Cops. Why won't they fire them if they if yeah, you yeah, know exactly they know the and they're executive exactly they're in the executive point. position they won't fire them, sir? How, why, that is why exactly the them? point. That's my point. Don't think I. But then why are your why are your friends who are in executive positions hiring racist police officers or right. or training police so, officers so that allow racism them. on the police the department? The context that I'm referring to is a sheriff that just won an election and he had racist cops that were already there when they looked at the guy's internal file. They found that he had problematic issues before that day. He had nothing to do with the hiring, but he fired the guy and he had him arrested. So now Good. I come back to this, sir. You know police can be racist. I That's do. Him. There, there are police officers is, out there that are oh, racist. Well, well, other people are more racist than the police. No, officers. I'm saying that the you government can't. job highly trusted, and it shouldn't happen. Right. I would love to believe that. I, I think that people should never commit a sin, but it's the way humanity is, unfortunately. All right. So there are people that take advantage of the badge. You there are know, people that take advantage so of all kind of things. You have never ran into a racist cop. You don't think racist cops exist? To I a didn't high say level that. In some communities. You let me just say this. Have more racist cops than others. Well. If you say do some communities have more racist cops than others, sir. I'm telling you, I'm telling you that okay. racism on the police department is very rare, especially right. in black You've communities. You've been in every police department? No, I know I'm no police officers all over the country. Black, oh, that's white. Good for you. I believe the community members. I don't believe y'all. Y'all allow police. They report. want they want police. If you look at any black community yeah, yeah, in sir, America, they want, they want, they want more police officers. Police. They want honest police, sir. They and most of them get honest police. Who okay. do you think All picking right. these I, young brothers up off the street call. and investigating I crimes? I appreciate your- Who investigating your rapes in the black community? Sir, no one is saying no police are necessary. We want good police and that's not a bad thing. We don't want bad police you. and we're able to make that demand. We I agree with you. Thank you, sir, for being on the show. I All right, this has been indisputable. Remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, take care of the planet. Remember, the truth is always indisputable.